Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. I'm reminded of a man named John who worked for a denominational office in Minnesota. And one of his uh, jobs was to travel to little towns where they don't have churches to do funerals. What he would do is he would go out with the undertaker and they would drive together in the undertaker's hearse. One time they were on their way back from a funeral and John was feeling a little tired. So he decided to take a nap. And then he started thinking, because he was a thinking man. So he started thinking about this a little bit. He had a lot of room to lie down in the back of the hearse, so why not? Seemed like a good idea to me, guys. (laughs) Why not stretch out? I mean, you have to love the skin you're in, right? So that's what he did. Well, the guy driving the hearse pulls into the gas station, but it was one of these old school gas stations. Yes, in the Midwest, you can still find these where they still pump the gas for you. And the attendant was having a hard time because through the windows he could see, even though it was tinted, he could still see, and he could see a body stretched out in the back. But he did his job. He kept doing his job right up until John happened to wake up. And then John opened up his eyes and knocked on the window to wave at the attendant. (laughs) True story. When people see life where they are expecting death, it changes everything. 1 Corinthians 15 and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is on my heart this morning where we continue our study on the clarity of the gospel of of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that sets the Christian faith apart from all the other religions of the world. It's the reason we're here this morning. Christ rose because he is the God of the living, not the dead. Confucius is dead. Muhammad is dead. Buddha is dead. In the early 1980s, there was a devastating flood in central China. And during the flood, an ancient pagoda collapsed at Men Temple. And a few years later, archaeologists were digging through the rubble when they made this startling discovery that made the news all around the world. Sealed in a miniature stone casket, they found what they believed to be part of one of Buddha's fingers. So they put it on tour in Taiwan. And for a while it was up on this mountaintop monastery on display. The finger was housed in a miniature golden pagoda as tens of thousands of people traveled and came to pay homage to this finger. They burned incense to it and placed flowers all around the relic. And one visitor said this, quote, I was born more than 2,000 years after the Buddha, but I feel moved and touched to have seen the finger. Some said they felt as though Buddha was actually sitting in front of them. It's kind of tragic, isn't it? It's empty. How empty? People sitting before a piece of mummified flesh, feeling as though if it was something special. So I ask this, could the finger of Buddha help them at all? 
Could the finger of Buddha heal them? Could it raise them from the dead? See, every leader from the man-made religions today, they're dead. Every single one of them. But Jesus Christ, he is alive. And if Jesus did not rise from the dead, see, this stuff is important. If Jesus did not rise from the grave, then our faith is worthless. If Jesus has not risen from the dead, then Paul tells us we are to be pitied. If Jesus has not risen from the dead, then our faith in Jesus Christ is misplaced. If Jesus has not risen from the dead, then we're still unregenerated. We're still lost. We're still dead in our sins. If Jesus has not risen from the dead, then we have a false hope. And then there's no hope of eternal life. This is as good as it gets. No resurrection means Jesus is still dead. No resurrection means our preaching, my preaching, it's all in vain. No resurrection means the New Testament writers were all liars, every single one of them. No resurrection means all who have died are forever gone. No resurrection means let's pack it up and go home. Let's get out of here. Because then the Christian faith is just as shallow and meaningless as all the other religions of the world. But Jesus Christ is alive, isn't he? Jesus Christ is alive. And that is what makes the Christian faith the only belief system that offers any hope. One of the things that I want you to walk away with this morning this understanding that to be a Christian is to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because the resurrection of Christ is the very core of the gospel message. Paul had planted a church in the city of Corinth. This was a port city in a sailor's town. You know what happens in sailor's towns. What happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. When the sailors were around, it was like taking Mardi Gras, Super Bowl Sunday, and New Year's Eve all rolled into one. It was a party spot. This is where Paul lived for a year and a half, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and telling the new believers to leave behind the prostitutes, to leave behind the temples, the gambling dens, the corner bars, and the gospel of Jesus Christ transformed these people by simple faith. But then Paul leaves Corinth Word reaches him that the people he knew that had come to faith were slipping backwards. They were slipping backwards in their faith and slipping back into their old ways. Church one evening, the pagan temple the next. Sober for a bit, drunk for quite a while. So Paul writes them this letter, this gem of a letter, this, this interesting letter. And Paul reminds the Christians what this life is really all about. And what does he do? He roots everything in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He knows that people are starting to doubt some of what he said. They're forgetting what he taught them. So Paul takes this challenge, and this is his argument. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we are pitiful fools. That's the truth. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we've insulted God himself. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then he wasn't the Messiah. And we got it all, not just some of it. We got it all wrong. But here's the great thing about this letter. We are left with a clear record of the content of the most important subject known to mankind, the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So we start in verse 1 in our text where it says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand. Brethren, believers, believers, he says. See, the New Testament church was almost exclusively believers in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ huddled up in their homes, meeting together to worship and study the word of God. Paul is reminding them of what he had preached to them. He's reminding them of the gospel message that they had received. John 1.12 comes to mind. Every Christian in this room should memorize this verse, John 1.12. It's very important to your understanding. Where it says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To who? To those who believe in his name. Notice the middle of the verse. To them he gave the right to become children of God. Who did God give the right to become children of God? To those who receive him, to those who believe in his name. Two descriptions of the same event. Do you hear it? Two descriptions of the same event. See, belief in the New Testament means more than just head knowledge. It's more than just understanding who he was. It means more than just understanding the facts that there was this guy named Jesus from Nazareth. Belief in the Bible is to trust, to be confident of, to have faith. To believe in his name means to trust in who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us. And based on this verse, we can understand... That in any of the books of the Bible that were written by John, when the text says that someone believed in his name or that they believed in Christ, it is the same thing as receiving Christ. It means to have faith, to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And this is really consistent with the message of the entire New Testament. In fact, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 1 tells us what? They received the gospel. But then let's skip ahead. Let's skip down to verse 11 and notice this. It says, therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you what? Believed. See, to have faith in the gospel of Christ is to believe the gospel. It is to receive the gospel. Now, Acts 16, whenever you're talking about the gospel, Acts 16 should come to mind. Paul and Silas were in prison in Philippi. The earthquake hit. The prison doors were open. The jailer was terrified. Why? Well, because if the prisoners escaped, he was the one with his life on the line. He was the one that was held accountable. And Paul told him not to harm himself because the prisoners were all there. And the man asked in verse 30, he says, what must I do to be saved? Notice the answer in verse 31. So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll be saved. Belief, faith, trust in Christ, in who he is and what he did for each of us. Those are synonyms. Belief, faith, trust. The gospel message, I've been telling you this for a long time. The gospel message is so simple, every one of us ought to be able to say it in 30 seconds or less. And if you can't, I question what you're doing in your faith, Christian. Here it is again. I share this every week. Saving faith is the belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who died and rose again to pay one's personal penalty for sin and the one who gives eternal life to all who trust him and him alone for it. And as we've said, 160 times the New Testament tells us that salvation is by faith alone. So here's a question. Let's stir the pot a little this morning. What about repentance? 
What about repentance? Define your terms, Christian. Define your terms. Repentance in the Bible just means a change of mind. It just means a change of mind. But inherent in the gospel message itself is that sin has a penalty, which is death. So by the very definition of the words inherent in the message itself of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the agreement with God about the wickedness of your sin. But you don't have to list out every single sin you ever did. Otherwise, I'd never do anything else because I was a busy boy before I got saved. I was a very busy boy. Okay? You don't have to list out every single sin. You have to agree with the wickedness and your own depravity, which is sadly, though, where the reform camp takes it about listing out and turning from every single sin before they get saved. John Stott, and I'm going to pick on him this week. I could have picked on MacArthur, Piper, Sproul. I could have picked on anybody, but I'm just going to pick on one this week. John Stott said this, and you tell me what the problem is with this. This is from his book, Basic Christianity. He said, first, there must be a renunciation of sin. This, in a word, is repentance. It is the first part of Christian conversion. It can in no circumstances be bypassed. Repentance and faith belong together. We cannot follow. Okay, I question now if we're talking about the gospel at this point. We start talking about following Christ, because that's more of a discipleship. Follow Christ without forsaking sin. Repentance is a definite turn from every thought, word, deed, and habit, which is known to be wrong. Those are strong words. Those are very strong words. That's getting cleaned up to take a bath. Forsake sin. Turn from every thought, every word, every deed, every habit known to be wrong. Now, I would encourage you to contrast this with the Gospel of John. I would, because John 20 teaches us this. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may, what, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have, what, life in his name. See, the Gospel of John is called the Gospel of Belief. If you've ever studied it, it's called the Gospel of Belief. Why? Faith. John said, by believing, we could have life in his name, by simple faith, by simple trust. But... Here's something you should consider, Christian. Never once, not once, not one single time in the Gospel of John is the word repent ever even used. Nothing about forsaking every sin or turning from every single bad habit in order to receive eternal life. Now, the Reformed Gospel that is being taught today is a gospel of another kind, a different kind. It's not the gospel that the apostles handed down, inspired by God to record. And that should trouble you. That should trouble you. There's nothing in Scripture about having to surrender every area of your life, commit or pledge your life in every single area for eternal salvation. Understand that we are sinners? Yes, absolutely. Understand what Christ did for us? Absolutely, of course. And there are even times when the Bible speaks of repentance because of a change of mind about who Jesus Christ is. Absolutely. Acts 2.38 comes to mind. Peter had just spoken about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to the crowd in Jerusalem. And he says to them in verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and what? Christ. 
Peter had just explained to the crowd in Jerusalem that Jesus was their long-awaited Messiah, and they had killed him. They had killed their Messiah, the one they waited for hundreds and hundreds of years for. They killed him. But God was working, and the Holy Spirit was convicting. They were already convicted of their sin. It was not, hear it, not that they needed to feel remorse over their sin because they were already broken before God, and I can prove that to you from verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And look at what Peter says to them. He uses the word repent. Why? Well, he says, then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, was it repent with this reformed idea of turning with every thought in word or deed? No, but it was absolutely. Yes, it was a change of mind to repent, a change of mind about who Jesus Christ is, the Son of God. Yeah, because the specific sin that was at work in Jerusalem was the sin of rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. That's what they needed to repent of. This is how the gospel, and this is how the Bible, talks about repentance. To change your mind about Jesus. To place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again to pay your penalty for sin, so that you may receive eternal life. Now, I believe in repentance. I do. (laughs) I do it every day. Angie sees it all the time. But when it comes to the gospel, we need to let the word of God define it. We need to let the word of God define it. Notice back in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul preached to them the gospel, which they had received and in which they stood. Now, Christians get their standing in Jesus Christ. We get our position in Christ. We are justified before God the Father because of the death and resurrection of Christ. Believers standing on the gospel of Christ means we get our identity from who? From him. We get our identity from Jesus Christ. Same topic in Romans 5, but Paul expands his teaching there. Watch this. He says, therefore, having been justified by how? Faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith and into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of glory. We are justified by faith. We have peace with God through Christ. By faith, we have access to the grace of God. We stand in this grace, and we now have this hope. And this is what Paul meant when he wrote to the Corinthians that they stood on the gospel. So Paul starts verse 2, and he's still talking about the gospel, and he says this, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Now, let's be careful. Paul is not suggesting that you can lose your salvation. Take that idea, get it out of your head. Paul is not suggesting you can lose your salvation. This thought is not present in the text. The gospel that Paul had preached, the gospel that the believers in Corinth had received, the gospel in which they were standing, by which, Paul says, they are saved. Now, follow me closely, because most Christians today understand this verse incorrectly. The common understanding of verse 2 is that genuine faith means that believers will always persevere. Now, let's be careful. Do you hear the word always? Always persevere. And they are not saying once saved, always saved. That's not what they mean. That's not what's being taught today. 
The teaching is that believers will always continue on until the end of their life with good works and strong faith. And if you don't continue to show good works, if you weaken in your faith before you die, better not weaken in your faith before you die, okay? Then it's said that you're never really truly saved in the first place. It's said that your initial faith in Christ was empty or non-saving faith. Therefore, this type of person believed in vain is the interpretation. And reformed writers like to say it was a worthless faith, belief that had no effect, non-saving faith. Now, do you hear that expression? That's nonsensical. Non-saving faith. That makes no sense to me. Non-saving faith. That's like, I love you, but I don't, Angie. I'm sorry. It doesn't make sense. But the gospel, I do love you very much, for the record. She's the love of my life. The gospel teaches no such thing as this non-saving faith. When faith, trust, belief meets the right object, Jesus Christ and what he did, the result is regeneration. So let's walk this through then. What is Paul saying? First, in verse 1, Paul already stated that they had received the gospel. Second, what is belief? Belief is faith. Belief is trust. You either believe, you either trust in the death resurrection of Jesus Christ for your salvation, or you do not. It's either or. The Greek text does not support this idea of non-saving faith. The Greek is actually straightforward. By which you also are saved carries this idea of the present tense. Present tense. Now that's important because it means this. It means that Paul is talking at this point about something presently going on in their lives. And the subject matter is still the gospel of Christ. The subject is still the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the Christians at Corinth had already been saved from the penalty of sin when they first trusted in Christ for their salvation. But a correct understanding of the gospel of Christ, a correct understanding of both the death and resurrection of Christ are essential to your faith if you're going to continue as a believer in Christ to be delivered from what? The power, the power of sin in your life. That makes more sense, doesn't it? See, it goes back to that three tenses of salvation that I've been trying to teach you guys for about a year now. Believers saved by faith in the past from the penalty of sin. Present tense, we are being saved from the power of sin. And I love the fact that I can sit there and teach that, and a lot of you guys are mouthing the words. I love that. We're getting somewhere in this church. And in the future, what are we going to be saved from? The presence of sin. So Paul is just simply saying, Christian, now that you've been saved from the penalty of sin, if you get confused about doctrines, if you get confused about who Christ is and what he did for us, you're going to have a tough time maturing in Christ if your doctrines are all messed up. You're going to have a tough time. Paul is simply saying, if you hold to those foundational truths about Christ that he had first delivered to the church, it would help to deliver them, save them, present tense, from the power of sin in their lives. But if not, if they got confused about the gospel after they got saved, they would have believed in vain. Not meaning they weren't really saved. It's not saying that. The idea is that they wouldn't fulfill the God-intended plan for every believer in Jesus Christ of bearing fruit to God. See, God desires all believers to bear spiritual fruit. But God does not force every believer to bear spiritual fruit. He doesn't force you to get up for church. He doesn't force you to be nice to your neighbor. He doesn't force you to read the Bible. 
He doesn't. And if you get messed up on doctrine, you're still saved, but you're going to have a tough time with bearing fruit to God. In that aspect, your, your life, your fruit, your belief will have been in vain, meaning without fruit. So verse 3 and 4 in your text. Let's read it. It says, For I delivered you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Many years ago, a woman wrote into old J. Vernon McGee. She listened to his radio program on the Bible, and she said this. Here is her thing. Our preacher said that Jesus just swooned on the cross and that the disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? McGee replied, and I love the bluntness, and we need more of this preaching in this day. He said this, Dear sister, beat your preacher with a leather whip for 39 heavy strokes. Nail him to a cross. Hang him in the sun for six hours. Run a spear through his heart. Embalm him. Put him in an airless tomb for three days. Then see what happens. Amen. (laughs) Paul lists out for us the content of the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Paul is clearly talking here about Christ's substitutionary death. That Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins and that we deserve the death. Now we don't have to be left guessing whether Jesus died and we don't have to be left guessing the content of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't have to sit here and and try to figure it out like we're so smart. It's written down right here for us. Paul was communicating the same message that he had received from who? From Jesus Christ, Galatians 1. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, Paul is laying down in 1 Corinthians 15, three very core essentials of the gospel, that without these three core essentials to the gospel, you do not have the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the first is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ was not just hurt on the cross. Christ wasn't just injured on the cross, which is how many would claim to explain away the resurrection. Paul says he died. Paul says he died. He actually, literally, truly died. He died, Christians, for our sins, according to the scriptures. Back in 2009, the liberal minister, Marilyn Sewell of the Unitarian Church, interviewed Christopher Hitchens. He was one of the most atheist influence of all time. He's not anymore because he's dead, so he understands there is a God now. Unitarians do not believe in the Trinity. They do not believe in hell. They do not believe in a literal resurrection. They are by no means Christians. And Hitchens was an atheist, and he didn't believe in God or the afterlife. And at one point, Marilyn, in her pride and her arrogance, said to him, I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from Scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins. Listen how this atheist responded. He told her, I would say... That if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian out of the mouth of an atheist. See, Paul would have agreed the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are at the core of the gospel. 
They're at the very central core of the gospel. If you don't believe in that, you're not believing in the gospel. The death of Christ was a part of God's wonderful plan of salvation. That's exactly why the Old Testament prophets foretold it. It's almost like God was trying to communicate it to mankind. He wrote it down. And then God carried it out exactly as foretold. So as I go through these verses, what I want you to do is track them with 1 Corinthians. Because Paul is just alluding to the Old Testament here. Track Isaiah 53 first. Isaiah was written down around 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 5. It says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Clear teaching from the Old Testament, predicted in the Old Testament, that because of our sins, you and I are alienated from God. That Jesus Christ paid the penalty, the price on our behalf, so that we may have the opportunity to be reconciled to God the Father, written down in the Old Testament for us. But then let's go back to 1 Corinthians. Verse 4 says again, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now Paul's appealing to the scriptures. And to see the burial of Christ foretold in the Old Testament, this time look to verse 9 of Isaiah 53. It says, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. In other words, what? Jesus died next to common criminals. He would have been buried like a criminal, but Scripture tells us that Joseph of Arimathea donated a tomb for Christ. This Joseph was a rich man, perfectly fulfilling this prophecy. And to see the resurrection of Christ foretold in the Old Testament, we look no further than Psalm 16, because it was a prediction of the resurrection of the Messiah. Let's skip down to verse 9, where it says, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh will also rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see what? Corruption. Now, how do we know what this is talking about? Well, here we see a prophecy that tells us that God the Father would not allow God the Son to see corruption. Clearly a passage written by David long ago that predicted the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Peter talks about this same text in Acts chapter 2. And he quoted these verses and he applied them specifically to the resurrection of Christ. See, for the apostles of Christ, this wasn't some theory. This wasn't something to be debated. This wasn't something they pondered in padded chairs on a Sunday morning. They followed Christ for over three years. Now he had been tortured. Now he had been put to death. Most of them in their own lives would be killed for Jesus Christ. And they knew very well he'd been nailed to a cross. They knew he cried out in pain. They knew that he'd been buried. They knew that the tomb was guarded by Roman soldiers. But after three days came the report that Jesus was alive. And I'm telling you something, Christians. The historical proof of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it ought to build your faith. Turning to these pages of the Old Testament and seeing the countless prophecies that foretold the coming of the Messiah written by different men hundreds of years before Jesus Christ came. That had to build your faith in the Messiah and in the accuracy of God's holy and perfect word. What else builds my faith? The fact that after Jesus was resurrected, the disciples... They didn't go off into some distant land to share the gospel message. They didn't go some off some weird place. They went right to the core center of it all. 
They went to Jerusalem, the last place they should have gone if Jesus was still dead. See, if the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, where Jesus was placed, if that tomb was not empty, if the body of Jesus was still in that tomb, any Jewish leader, and they would have been trying, or any Roman leader could have easily said, you Christians are all wet, you're all wrong. His body is just down the road. It's in the tomb. His body is in it, laying there, decaying, rotting away. But see, that didn't happen, did it? Even though the disciples went right to the city where this happened, no one could explain what had actually happened to the physical body of Jesus. And if they could have produced a body, the Christian faith would have ended. But it didn't. Why? Because Jesus Christ is alive. What builds my faith is the fact that according to Matthew chapter 27, Pilate made that tomb as secure as possible. It says this in Matthew. It says, On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He's risen from the dead, so the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone. And what? Setting the guard. Pilate posted a Roman seal on that stone. He put soldiers by the tomb to guard it. Anyone caught trying to break a Roman seal was to be executed by the crucifixion upside down. And a Roman soldier would receive the death penalty for abandoning his post. And that military conduct, that military discipline of the Roman soldiers was strict because of the fear of punishment. So it produced flawless attention to their duty, especially in the night watches. And if you look sometime at Matthew 28, you'll see that when the angel arrived at the tomb, the guards were still there. They were still there on duty. It builds my faith that God in his sovereignty had that tomb guarded to protect the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from false allegations. And there were plenty of witnesses. Oh, there were witnesses. Verse 5 in 1 Corinthians. And then he was seen by Cephas, and then by the twelve. And after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, meaning they're not dead, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. See, Paul had just told the church that the gospel consists of three core essential truths. And without these, without these, it is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again. You must believe these things in order to have eternal life. You must trust these things that Christ died on your behalf to pay the penalty for your sins. But now Paul tells us in verse 5, he tells us of the resurrection of Christ. He tells us it's a historical reality. Jesus didn't just rise from the dead. He appeared and he talked with people. See, those that would like you to believe that the disciples of Christ stole the body of Jesus have a hard time explaining this. They have a hard time explaining all of the historical witnesses that could attest to seeing the Christ alive. 
See, Christ appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Christ appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Probably James, the Lord's half-brother, who did not believe in Christ during his earthly ministry. But later on, after the resurrection, we see that same James becoming a leader in the church. Jesus was seen by all the apostles. All the early leaders of the church saw the resurrected Christ. Acts chapter 1 teaches us that one of the qualifications for even being an apostle was to have seen the resurrected Christ. And then look at verse 6. It wasn't just a few people. It wasn't just a handful of people that saw Christ. Over 500 brethren saw him at one time. Most of those people were still alive when Paul wrote this letter, which was over two decades later. Some had fallen asleep, sure, some had passed on, but most of these believers were still alive when Paul wrote this letter. And any person, here's the point, any person in the church of Corinth at that time, at that day, that was skeptical could check with these people. They could check it out that they had seen the resurrected Christ. So Paul tells the church that he himself was a witness to the resurrected Christ. And the text actually seems to imply the idea that Paul was the last person to see the resurrected Christ. All the other people had seen Christ after his resurrection, but before his ascension. But not for Paul. Not for Paul. It was not during those 40 days in which Christ appeared to the other people, but it was several years down the road. And that's what Paul meant when he wrote as one born out of due time. He didn't follow the earthly ministry of Jesus as the other apostles did. Why? Because Paul was a hateful man. Paul was a sinful man, a violent man that persecuted the church of Christ. So he writes in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because why? I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I. But the grace of God, which was with me. I hope you guys see the humility of the apostle. He knew his sinful condition in the past. He knew how bad he was before Christ. He knew how he had persecuted the church of Christ. He knew that left on his own, he could be nothing but a sinful and hateful man. But what does he say? By the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. You remember the words of Paul in 1 Timothy? where Paul said this in chapter 1. This is a great little text. And he says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into ministry. And although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And what? The grace of our Lord Jesus was exceedingly abundant which with faith and love which are in Jesus Christ. And he goes on and says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. See, Paul knew, and because of that, that forgiveness that he had experienced and that grace that God had demonstrated towards Paul, Paul used that as an opportunity to show that those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ can be forgiven of their sins. Paul was the pattern for us. So back in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says the grace of God showed him and motivated him to follow Jesus Christ. As he says in verse 10, his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. 
Now notice the contrast here in verse 10 with what we looked at back in verse 2, because I'm about to prove something that I said earlier to you. Paul said here that the grace of God in his life was not in vain. That's what he said. It was not in vain. Because why? Paul was bearing fruit to God. The point is this. If Paul would not have grown in his faith, if Paul wouldn't have done anything for Jesus Christ, he still would have been saved by faith, but his life lived would have been pointless. It would have been in vain. Same idea back in verse 2. They were saved by faith, but Paul wanted them to continue to hold on to the doctrines of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. Paul wanted them to grow in their faith, absolutely, so their lives would not be lived in vain. Now, in verse 10, Paul's not condemning the other apostles. He's not dogging on them. The simple point that Paul was making was that Paul understood his sinful condition before Christ. Paul was motivated with the love and compassion of Jesus Christ to work, to work as hard as he could. And that's what motivates me, honestly, if you want to know. That's why I do what I do. That's why I'm here, because I know what Christ has done for me. And so I'm here to serve my Savior, to reach people with the message of hope eternal life. Notice verse 11, how Paul ends this passage. He says, therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach. And what? So you believed. Again, notice the issue in this text, Christians. It is not if these were genuine Christians. It settles it in verse 11. Paul said they trusted. They believed the gospel message. A recent survey asked people the same question I'd like to ask you this morning. What's your greatest fear in life? What is your greatest fear? People mentioned in this survey the fear of dying alone, losing a job. But one in five expressed a different fear. Living a life without purpose or meaning. 20% of all people listed that. Listen to some of their own words. My biggest fear is never taking a risk in an effort to find my true calling. That was Anthony from New York City. My greatest fear is to go through living life small, but not realizing it until it's too late. That was Rebecca from Stuttgart, Germany. Or this. My greatest fear would be missing out on my purpose here on earth. I know I have a purpose that I am not yet serving. Danielle from Sacramento. To go through life without leaving a positive mark, Luciana from Sintra, Portugal. My greatest fear is regretting all that I didn't do as I lay in my hospital bed as an elderly man, Ralph from North Brunswick. Church history gives us every indication that once touched by the grace of God, this is not how the apostles lived out their lives. They preached Jesus Christ. They found their purpose in him until they were taken out of this world. Simon Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, was crucified. James, the son of Zebedee, was killed and beheaded. According to Acts chapter 12, King Herod had him put to the sword. John, the brother of James, was banished, of course, to the island of Patmos. He was eventually freed. And he died a natural death in Ephesus about A.D. 100. But Philip... Philip was martyred for the faith. Bartholomew was skinned alive, and then he was beheaded. Thomas, good old doubting Thomas, he was speared to death on the east coast of India. Matthew was martyred in Ethiopia. James was martyred for the faith in Egypt. 
Jude was killed in Persia. Simon the Zealot was either crucified or hacked to death in Persia. Matthias was martyred in Ethiopia. Paul beheaded in Rome. If we could ask them this question, if we could ask them if they would do it all again, you know what every one of them would say? Amen. They would. They would do it all again. Why? Because the tomb is empty, Christian. Because the tomb is empty. And in Christ, they not only found life, they found their purpose. That, friends, is the testimony of someone standing on the gospel of Christ. This is a testimony of someone who is redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and is not living their life in vain. So how did the apostles get this type of strength? Well, the answer was just in our text. Paul taught us that the Christian life begins with God's grace, and it's lived out by God's grace. That's why Paul was able to be so effective, because he relied on the grace of God. And so when believers say they haven't found their sense of purpose in life, you know what you're saying? You're saying this, you haven't started to live out the Christian faith, as Paul just told us how. Living by faith, living to serve Jesus Christ. It was Paul that said in his life this, and I'll end with these words. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I. Grace of God was with me. Stand on the gospel, my friends. Stand on the gospel. Live your life in the grace of God. And you will find your purpose. You will find that joy that comes from walking with the Savior until the day He comes. Take us home. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.